I realize this should be a uh, one-week retreat and not a three-hour <laughs> gathering. But I'll try to, in the last hour, uh, help us get to the heart of the matter. I th think maybe we have to a degree already, but... Let me see my glasses in the middle of all this. Oh, there we go. During the walking period, I was recalling the song that the Buddha expressed after his, uh, his awakening under the Bodhi tree some 2,600 years ago. And he was just like the rest of us, dealing with the, uh, the house that ego kept building over and over again. Uh, a sense of himself as, as sometimes in need of something, wanting what he didn't have, and, and not wanting what he did have, and how moment by moment we keep constructing a, a, a tremendous uh, internal drama of how we're going to uh, get from point A to point B. And that's a lot of our narrative, is, is, that, uh, is that identity that is um, tethered to time. So we talked before in the, in the earlier section about how, what happens when our sense of well-being depends on how things turn out. What happens to the present moment? The present moment, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, the present moment becomes this pass-through this place that we pass through on our way to someplace else. It's kind of bizarre since this is the only moment we have but we're busy trying to get somewhere else. So it becomes either just a means to an end, pass through, it becomes, as he calls it, the, an obstacle to whatever we want to have happen, or it becomes the enemy. And this is, this is a coloring of our mind, of our consciousness, that turns the present moment into a place that's screaming out, I can't be happy here now. And given that it's the only moment that we have, it doesn't, it leaves us in a state of, of, um, of suspended happiness. So the Buddha was faced with the same thing, and even under the Bodhi tree, as you probably have heard the stories of how he was faced with the voices of, uh, of in his mind of Mara, is the, the uh, expression of the different temptations of our mind, the defilements of our mind that, say, that are continually reminding us that we can't be happy now, that, that wants to not have us do really bad things, but wants us to stay stuck on the wheel of, of endlessly waiting for that future that never arrives. And so Mara is the, uh, is the mythical representation of that, of that mind that's... Uh, it's, it's really the representation of the hindrances. I want what I don't have. I don't want what I do have. I'm worried whether I'll get what I have. I'm regretful for everything else I did before. I'm exhausted from all of this, and I'm really doubtful about myself and about pr life and about practice. That's Mara. And that is the, the building blocks of the whole story of me. And the Buddha was faced with that. Oh, well, who, what makes you think you should be able to sit there and get enlightened and, and find peace in the present moment, Mara would say. Or wouldn't it be better to, uh, to go back and take over your dad's business and own lots of land and have lots of fun and 
wouldn't it be better to be in a hot tub right now or do some Sufi dancing or whatever it is? This is Mara's, always thinking the best is yet to come. It's not, not to be found here. And there was a point in the Buddha's practice where he saw that all those voices of Mara were just uh, voices. They were just, uh, they were fabrications. They were, they were phantoms. They were dreams. They didn't really, they were just ideas. They were about a, they were a construction project of somebody who didn't really exist. An imaginary version of himself of the one who goes from the past to the future, when all we are really is this unfolding present. And once he saw that, those voices in his mind, he says, I see you, Mara. And then he started to see something else. He started to see that all, all these voices, he saw three characteristics to each one of those voices. He saw that they were coming and they were going, that if he held on to them, he suffered, Anything you hold on, anything that's changing that you cling to or you reject is, uh, is, uh, is, will give you rope burn. It's like holding on to a rope. And he saw that as they were coming and going that they were empty of self. They were, they, they just were, they were just apparitions. There was no, they weren't him, they weren't him. They weren't me, they weren't mine. They're, he says, this I'm not. And he said, there's just, these things are just empty of self. They're bubbles. So we don't often recognize that the 65,000 thoughts that are going through our mind every day, and that supposedly 90% of those are repeats from the day before, we don't recognize that those are selfless. They're not me, they're not mine. They're thoughts that are thinking themselves. And that whole view of self that arises in our mind, even though it's wonderful to be able to think, Wonderful to be able to construct that, that sense of a self that came from the past, that's moving through the present on the way to the future. That, is, that self is really not self. It's really a, a, it's a, it's a virtual version of self. And to the degree that that becomes a source of, of misidentification, it becomes a source of suffering. And then our, our bodies suffer because future is so much the orientation future and past are so much the orientation of that imaginary self, we end up often feeling, having the felt sense that we're not enough right now, that I don't have enough, I'm not enough, I need to become something else, I need to get somewhere else. And I brought, uh, well, I thought I had it with me. This is a long story but it expresses, it expresses the wanting mind very beautifully. The mind that thinks that someone is going to be the secret to my, my freedom and happiness. And how we construct ourselves moment to moment to not only to enhance our own wonderfulness, but then to attract the wonderfulness of another. Any of you have that one? And this is very funny, but it's also very poignant, and it such, so much expresses the way that we construct self around wanting. And, and you can take leaps in your own mind to see how we do that around not wanting, too. How we tend to just 
project and proliferate a whole story of how whatever that person is or that situation is the cause of all my unhappiness. And this is an example of someone who he thinks, this is George Bilger in his poem called Unwise Purchases, the things that he thinks will make him actually happy. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I bought, I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only use once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, <laughs> and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, when I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. <laughs> but I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in the teeming city, there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set, a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So this is how we construct our identity that seems so innocent and so natural, the way our mind proliferates in fantasies of wanting, but how it leaves us, as all the studies that have been done about our daydreaming, it leaves us uh, making our... Um, the things that we have to do in the here and now, that much more difficult to do. The daydreaming, even in its intent to make our life easier, uh, it just makes it harder. So we try to make that shift from being just carried along by that. We don't stop it, we don't delete it, but we try to wake up and notice that our mind is, is fabricating an imagined future. And we stop in that moment. We don't stop fantasizing. We can even enjoy the fantasy, 
but we stop postponing our well-being, postponing our happiness to some future that never arrives. And this is what happened to the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. He saw Mara. He saw the ephemeralness of Mara. He saw the emptiness of Mara, saw the impermanence. And he and as his mind, as he stopped grabbing onto and being lost in these different uh, versions of himself uh, and his insufficiency, his mind relaxed. He stopped grabbing and misidentifying with these stories, stopped pushing them away too. And when he stopped grabbing and pushing away, mind relaxed and it opened. And he realized the sense of well-being he, he had searched for through all the fantasies and all the state of becoming, uh, that, that relief was in the very nature of his mind when it was free of clinging. The very nature of the mind that had, had become just for that, for moment by moment, unstuck from a dependency on anything for happiness. And he realized what's called lokutura sukha, unconditional happiness. Happiness that's free of hunger, that doesn't depend on circumstances, people, things, uh, being any different for a sense of well-being. And that this is our birthright, the nature of our mind is inherently free. And that there's no freedom in the continual uh, building of the uh, house of, of self and thinking that we will actually find a solution in the, uh, in the manufacturing of a, of a better self. And because once we build that, that self in our mind, it tends to, because it's born of, because it's dependent on thinking, because it's dependent on thought, it's very, um, it's very insecure, very easily shaken. Because it's dependent on time, uh, time is always running out, creates more insecurity. Because it's dependent on our body, our body is uncooperative, aging, very unreliable. So the whole, cons- the whole house of ego is a house of insecurity. And, and out of love for ourselves, we tend to, uh, in trying to deal with our insecurity, create a new identity of the one who's going to come to the end of insecurity, who's going to get to the bottom of it, who's going to finally heal the body enough, soothe the mind enough, uh, quiet it, whatever it is. And that process ends up being more what we call samsara, more endless wandering, more looking for that future that never arrives. Instead of simply bringing uh, observing power, bringing uh, mindful attention, and most importantly, bringing kindness and mercy to that, um, that shaky heart that is built on our ideas. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he saw through this whole illusion and, he, and there was a, a great unleashing of compassion toward how we fall into that case of mistaken identity. But, when he, but his lion's roar after he he saw through the whole game that his mind was playing, he let out a song. And in that song he said, 
through many births in the wandering on. So when I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do a little commentary as I say this, and hopefully I won't lose the thread while I'm doing it. Through many births, mostly when we think of birth, we think of the birth that we go through various lifetimes, some of the cosmology of, of rebirth and reincarnation, all that. But none of us can verify that from our own direct experience. What we can do, what we can verify and understand very intimately is how we take birth from moment to moment in these little virtual, in our virtual version of ourselves. That we can do, and maybe you'll understand this song more if you think of it as something that happens moment to moment than if you think of it in the big Buddhist cosmology of lifetimes. So he said, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Dukkha is birth again and again. Dukkha means unsatisfactoriness, stress, suffering. Is this, O oh, house builder, you shall not build a house again. Your ridgepole, your rafters are destroyed. The, your ridgepole destroyed, which is the, the root of seeing through the self-illusion. Rafters of the ridge destroyed. The defilements, all the, the trances of the mind. The, root, the ridge pole destroyed, rafters of the ridge destroyed. The mind gone to the unconditioned, unconditional well-being. Mind gone to the unconditioned, uh, to cravings, cessation, end, it has come. So he's, he's happy. And of course it didn't solve his, it didn't solve our issue. <laughs> it, was, it helped him let go of that tight fist of grasping. It didn't resolve ours. So after that, believe it or not, after his awakening, after he saw through the illusion of the house builder, that whole self idea, you think Mara went away? Mara kept coming. But he, but he no longer believed Mara. So just so you know, it's not about deleting Mara and all of our temptations, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, all the different hindrances. They come throughout our lives. That's what minds do. They're think, we're thinking machines. We're self-manufacturing machines. But the difference between a Buddha, an awakened person, and an unawakened is, a, is the Buddha knows Mara is Mara. An unawakened person believes Mara is me. There's a famous passage, it's the last one I'll do before I, I move on to another part of the topic. There's a beautiful passage, and our practice constantly points to this. And it starts with saying, luminous is our mind. Our, the, our nature of our mind is luminous, it's clear, brightly shining. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining. And it is colored by all the defilements that visit. Thus, the, the unlearned person, or the person that doesn't practice, they don't understand, so there's no cultivation of their mind. We just, we're just dra dragged along by whatever our mind tells us. 
The second half of the passage, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by the defilements that visit it. Thus the yogi understands, therefore there is cultivation of the heart, cultivation of the mind. So this is, we're not trying to delete anything, we're trying to make a shift from being just carried along by the stream of distress, and the stream of wanting, the stream of aversion, stream of worry, to noticing it. Oh, this is worry. This is the wanting mind. So instead of getting caught in the story of it and feeding it, we feel what that's like. We go, oh my Lord, look at how painful it is to be caught in, the, in waiting for the, for the desk clerk to, to respond to my, to my longing. Waiting for the room to quiet down when it's noisy. Waiting for my neighbor to, uh, to stop clanging up the stairs, whatever it is. Instead, we notice how painful it is to be in that state of waiting. And if you feel, if you feel the, the, the effects of our different mental states, this is the... So we started with the first foundation, the body. Second, we talked about... I didn't really elaborate as the second foundation of mindfulness, but I talked about the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral, the building, the springboard to all our reactions. There are pleasant experiences, grasping, unpleasant, aversion, neutral, space out or, or um, get lost in our ideas. This is the second foundation. The third foundation of mindfulness is the state of our heart, the state of our mind learning our mental states, learning what it feels like to be in a state of wanting, in a state of aversion, learning when our mind is and our heart is contracted, learning when it's spacious. And so it's both sides. But what we do in terms of loving the house that ego builds, first, and the Buddha suggests is feel what's stressful. And then, rather than, when we feel what's stressful, rather than simply running away, that stressfulness begins to melt away and begins to open up our heart of compassion. We don't, we, don't, we don't tend to be very... Our strategizing and our planning doesn't tend to increase our kindness. It tends to increase our worry and anxiety about how things turn out. When we turn, instead of away from our experience, toward our experience, feel the mental state, feel the effects of Mara in our body, it opens our hearts. But it also does some other things. We also develop the wisdom that the state of wanting is a changing condition like the weather. And, and often when we see it change, then it doesn't matter whether, the, whether the, the, uh, the guy ever checked into the hotel or whether, the, whether they, they actually made it. It doesn't matter as much. You're already free. You're already relieved by the fact that, um, that whatever mental state is, whatever state of the heart or mind happens, is it changes. We don't have to be so busy undoing things. Things liberate themselves. So, oh house builder, you can see the way the house of builder, you've been seen, you won't build a house again right now. Your, your rafters have been broken down, ridgepole destroyed, your mind resting in awareness. Resting in the knowing, in the unconditioned, a well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. To cravings cessation, it's come. And 
this may seem like a vast experience and a big, big lion's roar from the Buddha, but it's actually something that we fulfill every moment of mindfulness as I started today. What's true about a moment of mindfulness? Any moment we're just being with things, that's a moment free of grasping, a moment free of aversion, a moment free of meing and mying, of, I, of building the sense of self. It's just what it is. And when we see what, just what it is, what's actually happening anytime? There's only six things that ever happen. What are those? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, consciousness of those arising and passing. That's the totality of our life, moment by moment. The rest of what we build as our, as our drama, it's all mind-made. It's, it's virtual. But the fact is, we build a lot of it. And so we have to be very kind to ourselves because it leaves our body shaky. So much kindness and mercy. So you may, you will understand the answer to the question where Rumi asks in one of his poems, he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? He says, come out of the tangle of fear thinking, of me thinking, live in silence. Flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So he asks that question, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Why do we? I'm curious if you reflect back to me, why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Anybody willing to say? It's comfortable. Is it? It's familiar. It's familiar, yeah. We haven't noticed that the door is open. Haven't noticed that the door is open. Yeah, that there's a door. Mom says so. What's that? Mom says so, exactly. We haven't been outside. We, we may not know what we're missing. Yeah, we haven't been outside the, the, the house, exactly. Thank you. Anyone else? Don't step out of our reptile brain. It is true that a lot of it, it could be reduced to, to science, to uh, biology and chemistry, and uh, it could be reduced to that. But the good news is that we are not just completely victims of chemistry and biology, of heredity, etc. Uh, we are, as it's been evidenced by countless thousands of beings over many centuries, we're trainable. We can come out of the tangle of fear thinking. We can open our house, uh, seep through the illusion of, of ourselves. We can open our hearts of compassion, which is really the fruit. That's the whole point, is seeing through the illusion of self is seeing through the illusion of others, to have our heart unleashed toward all beings, be less contentious. You see that, see that ego in each person, and that, that whole dance of of how each person manifests that sense, some sense of insecurity that I'm not enough. You can look at everybody and see it, but you, we usually turn away from it. But with our, under, with our own self-understanding, then we, our heart just opens. We just fall in love with every person and see, oh yeah, they're not who they say they are. They're not who they're thinking they are. They're certainly showing all that shakiness, but I see, I see their beauty their perfection, their Buddha nature, as we sometimes call it, their divinity. That there's, so 
some would say the, as I forgot that line from Eat, Pray, Love, uh, the divine is in me as me. We, we're the miracle that we've been searching for. You've heard that one as well. That doesn't square so well with the idea that's about ourselves, that's going through our mind, does it? So our practice, and I think we'll do a little practice right now for the next 10 or 15 minutes, is to not just have this be an idea, but to have it be an ever-present reality. We begin with a little taste, if we're present, where we taste the truth of the expression from a Mahayana Sutra teaching called the Avatamsaka that says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So we sense for a moment after our last thought of ourself has ceased, before the next one arises, a sense of vividness, immediacy, momentary cessation of, of suffering. We remain simple and present but as all the teachings remind us, doesn't, isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises? And if that thought goes unnoticed, it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which is sometimes called the chain of delusion. But if it's noticed, that thought of self is noticed, it shows itself as just an expression of our awareness. Phantom, bubble, dream. So our attempt is to notice whatever our mind is doing. And to develop the sense of steadiness and composure. Make our best attempt to have our mind settled in our body, our body filling our mind. Tension anchored in the gentle movements that our body makes when it breathes. Open, empty like the sky. Yet impartial, welcoming even the thoughts of self as they come. Even the wanting. Even the aversion. Even the restlessness even the worry, even the doubt. Make room for everything. Great, luminous nature of the mind. 
just this moment, just this breath.
noticing the difference between our direct experience and any view we have of ourself, any thought or story about ourselves. Who are we when we're simply feeling the texture of the breath, body, the senses wide? What can you say? Free of the story of self.
in the last five minutes of our time, our sitting part, bringing loving attention to our our bodies, vulnerable, vital, just enveloping our bodies in loving attention from the top of our head to the tips of our fingers, to the tips of our toes. Loving attention to the skin, the flesh, the muscles, the bones of, the, of our body. Knowing its vulnerability, yet wishing it health and safety. Expressing that deep wish, may I have physical happiness. And may I accept my limitations graciously. And then feeling whether there's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings. May, my, may I be awake to the doors of perception and the feeling tones that present themselves in my life. May I have the happiness of, of being aware. Feeling the effects of our reactions to the feeling tones, our mood or our emotion, whatever it might be. Our mental states, our thoughts, our images. And then deeply wishing to have mental happiness, be able to accept, allow, be able to investigate the changing weather of our hearts and minds, and accept our limitations of our minds graciously. May I have physical happiness and mental happiness. My body be safe. May my mind be safe. As I think Annie Lamott said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try to never go there alone. But may we embrace our craziness, with compassion. Our mind and our body enveloped in loving attention, feeling every cell, every moment imbued with kindness. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I accept myself just as I am. May I love this house that ego builds moment by moment. May I take care of myself. Take 
what happens to me as my true property, as my karma. As may I embrace life. May I be filled with kindness and acceptance. May I live with ease. May I be free. May I not lift out of this moment to find freedom. May I know the sure heart's release. Unfortunately, we're, um, <laughs> we just scratched the surface, but uh, I guess I want to leave you with, with a wish that you, uh, that you find the humor in, your, um, in having self-awareness, self-understanding. As, as Bhante Gunaratna, famous meditation teacher, put it, sometime in the process of meditation, you will come to the realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. It's not any worse than it was yesterday. You just didn't notice. <laughs> And that Francois Fenelon from the 1600s says, when the light increases, you may at first think that you're a lot worse than you were before. But it's, that, uh, but it's really uh, the sign that, you're, that you are, um, that, that you are um, healing. And so this is not so humorous, but I think it, this part is really tender, how how taking our, the effects of our, our ego building, house building, uh, and the impact on our body is what brings the healing. And this is uh, Pesha Joyce Gertler in her poem called The Healing Time. She says, finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphics of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So hopefully you will love the house that ego builds, and, uh, and learn to, as Hafiz puts it, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins. 
He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that bring you just a, um, a moment of pleasure, fleeting pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> and in terms of humor, just try to enjoy the me-making and my-making. Kabir had a just very, I, I always get a tickle out of this. This is from whenever Kabir lived, 14th century or whatever. He says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. It's still me making and my making. It just does that. And finally, since we are running out of time, I, uh, I, one last um, uh, quote from Ed Brown, the the author of the Tassajara bread books, cookbooks. This is a reminder not to get caught up in the comparing mind. Remember we talked about it earlier in the day, the way that our mind, we construct the house of self as being measurable. That constant comparing, I'm above, I'm below, I'm equal to. Of course, as we're sitting here now in the silence, not one of us is measurable in that way, above, below, equal to. So we realize now, hopefully, as you're sitting here, that that whole, all that measuring game is, uh, it describes somebody that doesn't, that doesn't exist in truth. It's a, an approximation. It's, it's our tendency to measure. So this is what Ed Brown realized about the measuring mind. It's, it's his pat, he always uses food as a metaphor, so this one's called Biscuits Beyond Compare. <laughs> and I'll end with this and then make a few announcements and then we'll call it a morning. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I'd made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blotted the dough on, in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter, popped it open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Can, Pillsbury, can biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening, not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. 
Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheaty, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments that you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex, multifaceted, how unfathomable. A thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a bisquick Zen student looked like. Calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. <laughs> We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one that does those things. And if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. <laughs> Don't peek behind my cover, we say. And if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, the heck with it, I say. Wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? So let's just sit for a moment. Just don't need to change your posture. Just taste the biscuits of today. And as we do at the end of every practice period like this, we maybe remember, we feel, sense ourselves to be deeply connected to the, all the life around us. And we dedicate the, any fruits, any blessings, any benefit, any goodness that has arisen from our practice, we dedicate it to the welfare and benefit of all beings and punctuate that with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness increasing. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. Deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow, the biscuits of today. And a deep wish that all beings at least can grow in serenity and equanimity being less reactive to things, to people, to situations near and afar. And again, our wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated. May all beings love the house that ego built. So appreciated uh, being with you this morning. Uh, 
feel very sad that it was so short, in my view anyway, uh, but uh, happy to share one of my favorite uh, topics. And just, to, just a reminder, anyone who may want to sit with me here more on these kinds of things, uh, Tuesday night group in the city, 28 years every Tuesday, so it's all reliable whether I'm there or not. I'm, I'm there most of the time. But so come and drop in Tuesday, 7.30. It's all on the, on the, you can access it through the Spirit Rock website or missiondharma.org, missiondharma.org. And uh, also take advantage of uh, Spirit Rock and all the resources. Many of the teachers here also provide uh, mentoring and interviews, so take advantage of that as well. Uh, it's good for if you have people who know your practice, know what you're working with. Uh, that's something I sometimes forget to say at the end of, end of practice periods. And then just finally, uh, that, uh, just a reminder that uh, I came here, my practice is, when I come here, is my practice of dana, of generosity, is to offer whatever I have uh, freely. And the, the way that the teachings have stayed alive and transmitted for thousands of years is they've been offered freely because they're considered priceless. So they're accessible to everyone, and uh, you can't put a price on them. And, um, but uh, the way they've been uh, received is the people who receive them have supported those who offer them. And that cycle, of, that interdependent cycle of giving and receiving is, has brought us to this moment here. And uh, so we keep that alive by having Donna baskets in the back. And if you feel the impulse uh, to practice generosity, as the Buddha suggested, the first thing he talked about with lay people like us, and that you should do it every day. One of the, things, one of the ways that we let go of our, our self-preoccupation is practicing in all the ways possible in our life uh, generosity. And he talked about the joy of thinking about it, the joy of acting it out, and the joy of remembering it. And uh, it also allows these, you, you actually pay it forward in a way, make it uh, possible for me to go on to the next group. I'm here because others have been generous. So that's how it works here. So enjoy the practice of generosity. And don't, you know, if, if you offer, uh, offer to the point where it feels generous, don't offer too much that you feel regretful, too little that you don't get the joy of, of generosity. And of course, all, that's, all of it's optional, so it's up to you. And that's part of our practice here. And last but not least, it's been a joy to be with you, and I wish you all the, the best uh, dealing with your, um, your mind-made, your ego-making, your me-making, and my-making. Anyway, enjoy it all. Thank you. Please be generous to Spirit Rock as well. You only have three hours, but you nailed it. Oh, thank you. you know, thank really, you. Thank really you. appreciate it. Great. Glad you came. Yeah. No. And I'll look for your other... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.